Hello, and welcome to The Prestige, all about films, filmmaking, and film theory. Each week, we pick a movie, review it, talk about it, and discuss some of the ideas and themes that it might throw up. And as always, we end the show with our recommendations for movies to watch after you've seen this film. Further reading, if you will. Before we kick off, though, we do every week, and let's have a quick catch-up on what else we've been watching. So, Rob. So, I actually, for once, have two things to recommend from this week. Right. One, I think, is well within my wheelhouse, and one maybe a little bit out of that wheelhouse. So the first one I recommend is the 2006 TV series Mars. Uh, This is a production by National Geographic, and it sits somewhere between documentary and drama. The idea being that you're flashing between now, which is a documentary bit, talking about SpaceX and NASA, and all the people who are helping to get us to Mars, and a fictionalised 2033, in which the first colonists from Mars are arriving on Mars. It's six parts, and it's only six parts, so it's a short little series, but it kind of covers the basis of how we get to Mars, how we'll live there, and all that kind of thing. So it mixes up the theory side of... Um, the theory and practicality of real-life to current-day technology with sort of the, the more fantastical future tech in the, uh, the Split series. I just thought it was really, really good, and I finished it this afternoon. And if you're into Mars, and if you're into the Martian, and that kind of sort of... you enjoyed that... It's very much in that, that, that same ballpark. How can we w- watch it if we were so inclined? I believe it's either on Netflix or Amazon Prime. Right. Um, uh, certainly through National Geographic okay. um, themselves. Um, I believe it, it's, it's on their channel. I don't, we, we don't get it on our freebie box, but they do have a channel over here and it is on there. Secondly, and this is one that's a little bit out of my wheelhouse, and I don't know what people's reaction, or even satisfaction, is the 2013 The Secret Life of Walter Mitty. This is a Ben Stiller-directed, Ben Stiller-starring um, film about Walter Mitty, who sort of has this fantasy life in which he zones out from real world, and uh, how that transmutes into like, maybe a, a more realistic uh, adventure of his own. I am not a Ben Stiller fan uh, in many ways, many of his films. I really don't like a lot of the output. But this one really just hit me. I just think, I think it, A, it's beautiful, it's beautifully shot. The cinematography on this film is outstanding. Um, for a film that kind of didn't do a lot of, of scratch when it came out and didn't get a lot of critical reception, it is stunningly beautiful. And whilst I still may not love Ben Stiller in many of his roles, the sort of Secondary parts, the bit parts, supporting characters in this kind of lift it up, certainly. And Kristen Wiig, who I have rarely been a fan of in much of her work, really is quite uh, quite great in this, shall we say. I so, I remember avoiding it at the time just because I can't stand Ben Stiller. I saw it on a plane. I can't remember where I was going. I was going somewhere, I watched it on a plane, and I thought... That's really good, and so I've watched it again this week. And, and, and you, know, you know, sometimes when you, you watch a film on the plane, you're like, well... I was trapped, you know, like, your expectations are different. Yeah. And I, I always enjoyed, like, w- watching again a film I saw on a, on a plane thing. Well, that direction I had, is it actually that good? Mm. Um, and Walter Mitty certainly stands up to uh, to my re-watching as being one that I thought, yeah, I actually enjoyed that. Good. Sam, what about you? Well, I have, it's not often we get to, you and I get to go to the cinema. I have been to the cinema this week and have seen... The Wonder Woman film. Now, Rob, have you seen this? I haven't. Right. Um, but I've heard nothing but good things across the board. It It is. I have nothing but good things to add to it. Um, it is very good. It's 
Um, and there'll be no spoilers here, but you can probably predict how the last 15 or 16 minutes of the film pans out. Generally a fist fight over something. Exactly, yes. Um, so that was that was a bit of the the only bit of film where I thought, okay, right, I could see this coming, and this is a bit in there. But in other respects, it's absolutely brilliant. It it's 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 disappointing that it's refreshing in twenty seventeen to see something that is so female centered being necessary, but it is. Um, and it's just I was trying to trying to explain just what I liked about it afterwards. It's sort of the antidote to something like the sort of mansplaining attitude you get in lots of contemporary films where the the character on top in in a verbal confrontation or in figuring something out will inevitably be male. And it wasn't that at all. And no one, no one ever put Diana Prince in the corner. Um, Fair enough. So yes, yeah, it's, it's very good, very well worth watching. Does it tie into the wider sort of DC cinematic universe? Because it obviously she appeared in in the uh, Batman versus Superman: Dawn of Justice. Yes. But this this film itself does it tie through in some manner, or is it just like a a standalone prequel? It does. It, it ties into that film. It is. And as you can tell, so much better than that film, mainly because the two characters I liked least in that film, Batman and Superman, were absent. Um, wow. <laughs> and not even Lex Luthor; like he was worse than Batman, really. I, it, I, I got the soft spot for Jesse Eisenberg. I don't mind. Really? Um, wow. Yeah, I just, I just couldn't stand that that Batman, that Superman. Um, it's it gives you a nice um, link to that film, link to one of the artifacts in that film. So there is some continuity there. Uh, it was, I suppose, a little bit standalone because the origin story is so far apart, or the origin story of Wonder Woman is so far from the other members of the Justice mm. League. But it was, yeah, it was, it was a really good film. So, Sam, what are we doing this week? Right, this week is the second instalment in the Lord of the Rings franchise. It's The Two Towers. What business does an elf, a man, and a dwarf have in the Ritter Mark? Speak quickly! We track a band of Urukai westward across the plain. They have taken two of our friends captive. Look for your friends, but do not trust to hope. It has forsaken these lands. Two Towers is the second instalment in the series of Peter Jackson films based on the books of J.R.R. Tolkien. Elijah Wood, Viggo Mortensen, Orlando Bloom, and surprisingly another actor return. Um, I'm going to avoid all spoilers, at least for the next 45 seconds. Um, we follow the paths of Frodo and Sam, Merry and Pippin, and Aragorn, Legolas and Gimli, who were separated at the end of the first film into three different mini-factions. Frodo still wants to destroy the ring, 
Aragorn still looks brooding. There are still lots of sword fights. That's that's my summary of the film. Rob. Um. So, I'm trying to how to explain my film. In many ways, Two Towers is my least favourite of the three. But in other ways, I think it has some of the best scenes and best action and best moments of the entire trilogy. Um, the film is many, in many ways three films in one. You've, as, as Sam Hollett, you've got these three strands going. Merry mm-hmm. Pippin, uh, Aragorn and, and that happy band and Frodo and Sam. And Frodo and Sam which obviously is the main driving force of the entire film, I think is the weakest of these three strands in this film. They just kind of wander around. There's no real sense of where they're going. And despite tricks like them always walking left to right in the shots, you don't feel like they're making progress. They don't feel like they're going in one direction. You feel like they're ambling around a little bit. Against that, you've got the Aragorn, and here's the spoiler, the Gandalf storyline. Um, which deals with Rohan and King Theoden. And that one's far more enjoyable and far more attentive, I find, certainly. And that does lead to what I think is probably, save for Save It Private Ryan, one of the best portrayals of mass combat on cinema I've ever seen. Um, the, the Battle of Helm's Deep, which is the big third act sort of uh, action piece. Um, this is also tied with a, a lovely, but I really, really enjoy an action piece involving Merry and Pippin, which is the 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 last ride of the Ents in which they kind of take down Saruman. So I think that the film takes a long time to get going, um, and its weakness when it comes to Sam and Frodo can let it down, but I do think that it ends well, especially with the, the other two storylines, both end on a great high, and I do think there are certain scenes that are brilliant, the sort of the, the freeing of Theoden from, from Wormtail's grasp, I think is a brilliant bit of uh, of filmmaking, and, and there's a, a shot, and a cut, it's a cut that I love, which is when Gandalf strikes Theoden with his staff, uh, to cast out the influence of Saruman, and it match cuts to Saruman being thrown across the um, floor. Mm. Um, and that, that I thought was a wonderful bit. You, 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 just get that, you get a real feeling of, of him being thrown out of his mind. I thought that was a wonderful bit of editing. So there's wonderful, really good moments in this, but it's a middle film. Um, and so you don't get any real narrative tie-up to a lot of things. Sam, what do you think? Um, I I think it's, I mean, it's fairly telling that in in this slip of the tongue, you call the the guy who has um, Thidden in his thrall Wormtail, because this at times this just felt a bit Harry Potter light. And I say this as someone who didn't think much of Harry Potter six months ago, but th- this film it, it puts Harry Potter in a new light for me. And I, I just didn't get on with this film. Okay. Um, I thought, I mean, I, I suppose that the, the big thing I would disagree with you on is that I just can't understand why the Battle of Helmsteep is there. It's, I, I just, it's just tedious. <laughs> there, there were times with the people being catapulted onto the wall and fight sequences there that I thought well 
this just reminds me of Evil Dead 3, and that can't be a good thing. Like, when you're comparing something to Army of Darkness, something something is not right. Um, I think we'll disagree on that, on that, <laughs> that point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, I thought... I, I thought, as you said, I thought sort of Freddy and Sam was a bit tedious. It was a bit sort of wishy-washy, weren't really going anywhere. They were wandering aimlessly. But then that picked up a bit with... Um, something they want to get onto fairly quickly is is the idea. We didn't talk very much about a theme last week, so I want to get into a theme very quickly. Is the idea of rebellion, and I really really like the Frodo and Sam story when you got onto the idea of a rebellion. So when it joined up with the story of Faramir, and mm-hmm. it was it became to do with. And I've read read some interesting things about this, how how they've changed things for the film and how Faramir and Frodo's relationship and the sort of the the ghost of Boromir, as it were, hovering over it, sort of sort of changed from book to film. Um, and I, I did I did enjoy that. I did like that. Whereas I thought the. Um, the Battle of Helm's Deep was a sort of a, a straightforward depiction of of warfare, and I didn't much didn't think anything much of that. Um, I did did like this idea of a sort of a rebellious political movement that was that was um, sort of presented through Faramir and Frodo. Okay. So yeah, I mean, it's the other side of the same coin, um, and I like the idea of rebellion. And but the thing that the idea that struck me was the, the idea of loyalty and versus rebellion. Mm. Um, and who are people loyal to? And as you touch on there, there's a moment in which Faramir rebels against the the law of the people um, because he's chosen to be loyal to Frodo. Um, and I think all throughout, I mean, you've got the double dichotomy in in the, in the Smeagol character, the Gollum character, yeah, uh, and the two halves of that character: one which is rebelling, one of which is fighting against the so-called master in Frodo, and one of which is loyal to to Frodo. And how that ends up at the end of the film is that both sides have become rebellious against uh, Frodo, and. I think that, 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 you know, that there's that there's all these little moments of like of, of choosing choosing rebellion or choosing loyalty, mm. um, and the Ents, the, the the Ents who are characters I love, I really love the Ents. They basically decide to do nothing. They they, they decide to have no action um, in face of war until they're presented with this desolation that's been caused, and then the loyalty they've got in into other trees kind of makes them rebel against the roles they've got the idea that they, they are they are these harmless sort of watchers and these gardeners and they aren't warfare characters but they rebel against their type because of their loyalty to the other trees that's interesting the idea of i have to say i didn't i haven't hadn't really been thinking much about this this merry and pippin storyline and the ends as well how how much are they how much is their involvement in the film sort of fleshed out in some of the extended edition material? There's more in in the um, extended edition, certainly. Um, 
there's more more going on, and there's there's more of the Faramir stuff, particularly mm. in the Um Without a long in front of me, I probably couldn't tell you all the details of, of, of all the comings and goings. But there's certain, there's more of everything, really. Right. Um, but there's certainly more of the Entmoot in the um, in the editions, and you certainly see more of the uh, the attack by the Ents. Mm. I thought. I mean, I've I've been down the film in a couple of places, but I did think again the. New Zealand is almost a character in this. It it's mm. it's just stunning. Um, and at the beginning of the film, where I was just getting a bit confused by the random groups of characters that kept being introduced, and the different places that were introduced, um, I could just sit back and think, yeah, but it looks nice, doesn't it? As you say, like the the, the locations and the geography are very much a character against it, and and that's where. If you want to type back this idea of rebellion, um, and we talked a little bit about that, the industrialization, the idea is that people live in harmony with 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 nature, with with, with the land, the geography they're part of. You know, they they're horse riders, so they they, they live in this symbolic relationship with nature. Um, whereas the bad guys don't. The bad guys don't have this this loyalty to the world around them. They are just creating and destroying. There isn't any kind of sense of a natural order in the way there is in the good side of things. Mm. Yeah. And it's... Yeah, there's something about sort of grasping power in these films that they will... Those who want to grasp power will circumvent the natural order, will will do artificial things in order to get there. So you have Christopher Lee... Taking taking shortcuts with the way that he interacts with people, um, and also I suppose you have the Saruman and the the creation of is it is it the orcs or the Uruka who who were born out of Uruka Uruka yeah so that sort of there there is a very real way in which those characters are created there's something unnatural about the way that they seem to just emerge from the ground i'd know that kind of birth but but a a distorted perverted version of birth mm. it's something like you, you saw in the alien films even yes it should be something natural and beautiful and yet it's really not at all i think it, it kind of got that sort of that perversion of of that sort of old established idea of birth being this natural life-giving thing and these things whilst they are life they are a perversion of life and certainly a a violent death-dealing creature and so it matches that their their birth is equally violent Mm. and and that is that that, the rebalancing between the two things Um, and, and that kind of often shows with the um Particularly in, in the Battle of Helm's Deep, the two sides. Um, this is desire, this feeling of honour, I suppose, and honour and integrity, and for want of a better word, human nature. Obviously, it's elf nature and dwarven nature and that kind of thing. Human nature on that side, and the bad guys, the 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 assembled hordes outside are distorted, and they are sort of not what the word for it is, but they're kind of rough and ready and angry and nasty and there's this weird kind of balance between the two and this mirror imaging of one year and you've got these impassive staunch defenders against this sort of snarling mess of, of an attacker 
Um, and there's a lot of kind of balancing those two things. Mm. Yeah. I did want, want to, before, before we finish, I think it's important to talk more about the character of Gollum, who is very, I mean, in, in a in a world of characters who are on one side and the other or the other he is he is very much both mm. he he embodies this character who switch as you, as you said earlier switches between the two switches between loyalty to quote unquote the master and rebellion against this so actually i mean Something I've got written down here, I felt that the coda with Gollum was a bit unnecessary. I don't think I mean unnecessary. I think it just stand. I think in many ways it stands out because Andy Serkis is such a brilliant actor. But it also stands out from the film because this is one character who is both at the same time. I agree. I think it was unneeded coda. I think it would kind of like, you know, at the end of the Harry Potter film, Harry Potter no, the 4, cutting to Snape and having his internal monologue. Mm. Like, the, the, the power in the Snape character is the, is he good, is he bad? And the idea of Gollum is that he's a, is good versus bad. Is he, you know, which better nature of his is or the worst nature is going to win through? And we'll touch more on that once, once Sam's seen the third film, certainly. Um, but it's not... I could have done without it. I could have done with just continuing into the third film with still with a bit of amb- ambiguity in that. Mm, yeah. I think, I, I suppose what it does is set up the potential for him to do it. And it's fairly obvious that he is going to do something bad in the third film, but it's sort of signpost that that's where this is going. And there's a, li- I suppose there's a little bit of studio cynicism about that. Like this can't be a standalone film. This has to lead towards the third in the series. There's something that has to mm. be artificial about the way that a film fits into a series, and that's something that they've also done with, and some of the changes they've made with the sort of the the wag attack from Fellowship of the Ring in the books is moved here. And there's mm. another character who, in the films, doesn't appear until the third one, but is in the second book. So they've shifted things around, and that sort of, I suppose, that's that's partially franchise level decisions about what is going to work as a film series. Yeah, I we we've, we've often touched on the idea of, of of a franchise needing to move along to the end, and it just felt. Not that it was treading water a little bit, but it felt like the the middle piece mm. yeah. of an ongoing story, which it obviously is. And you know they've got to time things like Helm's Deep and the Ents to kind of give it some oomph. But yeah, it does feel like a like you're definitely waiting on the on the last one. Whereas the first one obviously didn't end the story; it had some narrative closure to it. Um, this one didn't as much. Well, what do you have in the way of further reading for us, Rob? Okay, so I've got two this week, um, and one is actor, and one's actor slash kind of theme. So I'll go for the second one first. So the actor slash kind of theme, and I want to recommend the 1998 film The Thin Red Line. It's a film I've recommended several times. I have no doubt to uh, our, our listeners, I'm a big fan of this film. I talk about it a lot, um, and it stars um, many many people. 
Um, but particularly, it does star um, uh, Miranda Otto, who plays Eowyn. She appears in this. But more than that, it had this kind of the feeling of war. And this film was the first one felt like a an adventure. This one, in many ways, felt like a war film. Uh, you've got as a, a Faramir, and you've got the Helm's Deep. There's much more of a war feel to this. And this is my probably my favourite war film of all time. So if you haven't seen it, it is not anything like Saint Pat Ryan. It isn't that kind of violent outpouring, but it certainly is a, a, a good, I don't know what it, good, thoughtful, inspiring war film. So yeah, that's the red line I from nineteen ninety eight. I will say actually that um, it's another great thing about Wonder Woman is that it has remarkably good scenes of war. There are several mm-hmm. bits where she interacts with she she's involved in the First World War and and those those are brilliant. And it has that same kind of feeling of of the horrors of war without being horrific, mm. shall we say? Yes. Yeah. Um. Now, my second choice has no real link. I suppose it has, I suppose it has some real links in terms of visual effects, um, but that's that's pushing it a little bit. So I am going to recommend the 1988 film Child's Play. This film is the birth of Chucky. So if you've seen Chucky or Bride of Chucky, Seed of Chucky, Curse of Chucky, or even Child's Play 1, 2, and 3, it's quite a franchise. This is... The first, and Brad Dourif, who played Wormtail in The Two Towers, uh, here played... You said Wormtail again. That's his name. I could have sworn that he was called something different. He has, he has, his name is... Oh, what's his name now? His name is Grimly, or something yeah, like that. that. Yeah, thanks. Um, let's have a look what he's in it. He, he, okay, I, 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 his name is Grimmer Wormtongue, not Wormtail. That's, that's me being a, a potterhead. That is uh, his, right, okay. Uh, Wormtongue is, is the character's name. My apologies. Right. So Wormtongue, uh, Bad Durif, uh, he plays Charles Lee Ray, who is the serial killer who becomes Chucky, and then plays the voice of Chucky. It is a brilliant, brilliant slice of 80s horror. It is maniacal and violent and funny it isn't quite the, the later ones like Brother Chucky and City of Chucky and Curse Chucky very much go for the humour which the first one wasn't quite as funny but it has the horror element certainly if you have any interest in, in horror movies um, or even fancy a good sort of Friday night scary movie I can't recommend Child's Play enough so Sam save us from, from the uh, straight to video shelves <laughs> right okay um, I have two, one's actor, one's crew, one's controversial and one isn't. Um, I'll go for the controversial one first. And the composer on The Two Towers, Howard Shaw, also works on The Aviator. Now, I don't know how you feel about this, Rob. This is a, this is a controversial film in my house. Um, I actually quite liked it. And I, okay. I am alone in this. You remain alone in this. Right, okay. Um, okay, yes, it's it's not one of Leonardo DiCaprio's greatest, and it is far too long, but there are... I mean, it's stuck with me as a film. Um, so I, I would, would cautiously recommend The Aviator. Secondly, is um, an actor I mentioned towards the end, who I'm a great fan of in all his motion capture work, is Andy Serkis. And my recommendation 
and I'm on firmer ground with this one, is not the the recent one, but the 2005 film King Kong. Which is brilliant. You're not alone there, sir. Well, I I, I knew I'd, I'd come back to you with that one. Yeah, so you with me with, with, with a, a giant monster movie. Okay, yeah. Well, we will we will conclude the franchise and indeed our last franchise of the season next week with the end of the Lord of the Rings, which is called Return of the King. That's it. Return of the King. Yeah. Yes. So we shall see you all back here next week. Till then, you can find both of us on Twitter at Pretty Podcast. You can find just me at Life underscore Academic. And you can find me at Rob Kaiju. And we'll see you back here next week. The Prestige is a Kaiju Industries production. Check out their other work at facebook.com forward slash Kaiju Industries. Rawr!